The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Let's assume there's an abnormal test, which is locked with follow-up, um, because there's no clear-cut uh, responsibility allocation, you know, there's ambiguous responsibility in the health system as to who's responsible for the test. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's Annals on Call features two articles on diagnostic errors. The first article was written in 1957. It appears in the July 1957 issue of the Annals back when the Annals of Internal Medicine was a once-a-month journal. It's titled, A Study of Diagnostic Errors. The second article is titled, Inpatient Notes, Reducing Diagnostic Error, A New Horizon of Opportunities for Hospital Medicine. The first author, Hardeep Singh, is our guest commentator for these two articles. Hardeep is professor of medicine at the Houston VA. He's a patient safety researcher and general internist at their Center for Innovation, which is part of Baylor College of Medicine. He's one of the best-known researchers in the field of diagnostic error, and it is absolutely a pleasure to have this conversation with him. I'm sure you will enjoy it. Hardeep, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. The uh, first article that we're discussing is amazingly from 1957. I was doing a search of the annals for diagnostic errors, and I found this article, A Study of Diagnostic Errors. I love the first sentence of the article. The cornerstone of internal medicine is correctness of diagnosis. Has that changed in the last, let's see, this must be 62 years? No, thanks, uh, Bob. Thanks for having me. I don't think this has changed at all. Uh, We just are now talking about this as if it's sort of a relatively new thing, but I was amazed to see this paper that I actually had not seen um, from 62 years ago. I don't think this has changed at all. Um, We do want to recognize this this is the corner store, but I think we're not giving it as much attention as it deserves, though. So what I'm going to do is go over, uh, this is an autopsy study, and so they defined errors by autopsies They had a 72% autopsy rate, which is just amazing because we hardly ever get autopsies anymore. Not nowadays. So um, they actually had seven types of errors that they found. And uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over each of these errors and have you put it into 2019 context. So the first is a really classic one, the lack of an adequate history. Yeah. I think that is still true today. I, it you know, amazes me. One of the things that struck me about this article is this is from the VA where I also practice. And it's funny that 62 years ago, VA was still in the 
leadership role of understanding diagnostic errors. And some of the foundational studies of the current modern era of diagnostic error also come from the VA. And in fact, one of the studies confirms, and it's just not only a VA study, but it also includes non-VA uh, work. Uh, one of the things we're realizing is the history and the physical and what you do based on data gathering from that, such as ordering tests and things, is still one of the number one reasons for diagnostic errors. So one of our primary care studies, for instance, uh, which was finished, I think published in about 2012, uh, showed that 80% of these errors were related to some type of a provider-patient interaction, you know, history, physical, ordering a test, or looking at prior documentation. So very true today as well. And that's certainly my experience. I also work at the VA and do a lot of inpatient rounds, and most of the diagnostic errors that I see have to do with the history, although the physical exam is also going to be important here in a minute. The second is patients who have alcohol and or substance abuse and the implication there was we didn't look as hard or we we didn't go back and take the history after they're through with their acute confusion. Yeah, that is also a failure to um, in this day and age. We've seen cases and patients where um, adequate history was not taken e- either from a family member who was available, who could have been the source of information. Uh, we see this in patients who are a bit older, who come in with some delirium, where something critical gets missed, or you just assume, you know, oh, this is just like a UTI and ends up being something completely different uh, upon further assessment. So the third one, I think, is very rare, at least in inpatient medicine today, the lack of screening tests. Yeah, well, this one, we're doing a very good job of getting tests, aren't we? I mean, we're sort of on the border of over-ordering tests now in terms of screening tests. And when you look at the types of screening tests they talked about in this article, it was things like complete blood count, urinalysis, x-rays. We routinely get those things now on every admitted patient. So I don't think we're under-diagnosing as far as, uh, you know, getting, you know, these screening tests is concerned. Uh, we might be more on the over-ordering of some of these tests uh, now um, than under. Although I did have a case that was I actually published in uh, the journal Diagnosis of a patient who came in with uh, presumed community-acquired pneumonia. It ended up being granulomatosis polyangiitis. And yeah. one of the errors in and that delayed the diagnosis was that nobody had gotten a urinalysis. And when we finally got a urinalysis, he had over 200 red cells in his urine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So occasionally urinalysis doesn't get done these days yeah. um, when it might actually help. So I guess this still does happen, but I agree it's, it's quite rare. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things which might come out later, um, sometimes I've seen sort of patients where some imaging was obtained like a routine chest x-ray but it wasn't acted upon and nobody recognized it so they'll uh, one uh, i remember is the patient was literally being taken for a cabbage uh for chest pain and nobody had looked at the x-ray till like the day of surgery and they realized the patient also had a big tumor yeah um well this so this actually goes to uh, their fourth reason which has two parts their judgment errors and the first is the failure to explain a symptom or a sign. They, people sort of just discard this symptom or this sign because it doesn't fit their preconceived notion. And also the failure to, to explain abnormal tests, which are labs uh, 
EKGs and imaging. Imaging was obviously very different in 1957 than it is today, but we get these things and, and sometimes they aren't paid attention to. I think this is the most uh, revealing category of all the errors. And I think this is where one of the biggest challenges on, you know, with modern medicine is that, you know, you've got that case, but something doesn't make sense. Um, you know, unexplained leukocytosis, mild temperature, the abnormal urine, somebody disregarded a, you know, a fever, uh, you didn't consider the hematuria and sort of you were focused on something else but ended up having bladder cancer. We see a lot of these in the modern era. And uh, I think this one is particularly a category we should probably pay attention to, thinking about sort of strategies as to where things go wrong. One of the uh, things that we think about is um, you know, some red flags getting missed. So we've seen plenty of cases where somebody would come in with back pain, but they had just a touch of fever that you sort of didn't look at or disregarded, and the patient ended up having sort of an epidural abscess, which was diagnosed like a week later. I really, really think these two categories, and the tables are really telling, or really encourage readers to look at table six and table seven of this paper. It's, it's like wonderful. The next category was what they call prejudice viewpoint. And this was really anchoring and framing biases. Yeah. yeah. You know, we still have a lot of these. Uh, in fact, you know, we've created a better understanding of biases in this day and age. Uh, we don't know as much how to sort of fix them. And I think the same things exist, you know, uh, getting, you know, hung for, you know, anchoring onto one diagnosis and, you know, prematurely sort of closing everything else. Um, still exist a lot. What you do about it is is sort of not very well known uh, in this day and age. Yeah, I, I see a lot of the framing bias where we blame everything on alcohol or the IV drugs rather than look at the patient and say, what else could it be? Sometimes, um, so these biases could be um, a bit different. I mean, it could be um, related to sort of overconfidence. So we've sort of, you know, uh, described that. Some of these biases could be due to the patient themselves. Um, there's a pretty cool study a couple of years ago in BMJ Quality and Safety about difficult patients and how the vignettes of difficult patients sort of, you know, increase the diagnostic error rate. That's absolutely true. I found this great quote from uh, Agatha Christie about this. It often seems to me that all detective work is wiping out your false starts and beginning again. Yes, it is very true that. And it's just that some people will not do. They conceive a certain theory and everything has to fit into that theory. If one little fact will not fit it, they throw it aside. But it's always the facts that will not fit in it that are significant. That's Agatha Christie from the famous book Death on the Nile. Love it. And, and that's really what we were talking about is people, if something's inconvenient, they say they just sort of brush it aside and we probably shouldn't. The sixth one uh, was misleading normal x-rays. And I'm going to put this into 2019 context. We get a test looking for something. The imaging study doesn't, is negative and we forget that they have sensitivities and specificities. No, then that that is um, true. In fact, um, we've looked at cases of lung cancer where uh, you know it has been missed for a while, and one of the things we look at is uh, you know somebody disregarded symptoms um, because of a normal chest X-ray. 
Um, and sure enough, you know, these are, of course, confirmed to be normal and they were not just an oversight on, uh, mm-hmm. on the uh, radiologist. But uh, for sure, uh, this is still sort of happening. I have had patients who came in and we thought that they had uh, biliary obstruction and uh, they did a CT scan in the, in the emergency department, which is not particularly good test, doesn't show any problem. But then when we get the ultrasound, as it's a better test and might find the obstruction. But even had patients where we had to go to a nuclear medicine HIDA scan to prove that there was obstruction when everything about the clinical picture fit. And sometimes we think that tests are magic and have great sensitivities when they don't. Yeah, exactly. And the final one that they talked about was uh, the failure to review the case or repeat the physical exam. I think this is also true for history. I often tell the students and interns that the history of present illness doesn't end the night you take the history of present illness, but it's evolving and you should do it, repeat it as you get more information. Absolutely. Uh, I think going back to the patient's bedside is even more important today. You know, imagine you see them first in the emergency room or some kind of a crowded environment and you know you sort of are in a hurry because you have about nine other patients to see sometimes and then oftentimes you know when you you sort of think through the details of the case and something doesn't make sense you've got to go back to the patient's bedside again and take another detailed history i keep encouraging the residents to keep calling family members and getting stories from um, you know, family members in addition, because sometimes the patient may or may not know some of the details that family members know. So it's not just only the patient, but also some of the caregivers and family members and even friends if they have that information. Think about that, you know, patient with syncope where you really need to rely on somebody else's story to figure out what's going on. And you often have to talk to multiple people. And often the history the second day is a better history than the first day because the patient has been thinking about it for the last 24 hours. Of course, the attending always gets credit for being better at taking histories, but it's yeah. just, but it's really just that the patient has been thinking about it. Yeah, and my residents hate when that happens. They're like, how come the story changes when the attending walks in next, <laughs> next day? Well, I have a great story about that. Uh, I was seeing a patient who, uh, a young woman who came in with diarrhea, the ER, this was when I was working at a community hospital, the, the ER sent off a C. diff. As we're getting ready to go in the room, we get a call from the lab that the patient has C. diff. So we get dressed up and go in and talk to her and ask her if she'd had, and, and I'm doing the history taking, ask her if she'd taken any antibiotics, you know, if she'd ever been exposed to anybody, nothing, nothing, nothing. Go back out and I talk about community-acquired C. diff and why that's an important uh, concept um, that we're seeing more of that. Come back the next day, and the resident says, I went back in and talked to uh, the patient uh, later on the afternoon, and she remembered that she'd taken Cipro for UTI last week. Mm, yeah. so, so it's the second person. It's not just the attending. And uh, that, that is a great story that gives me humility, and I share that with the house staff when I, when I get a, a better history than they did. I said, it's just because I came after you. Yeah. So it's really interesting, the topics they came up with. And when I, when I read your article from 2016 on reducing diagnostic error and why this is an, a great opportunity for hospital medicine, it really resonated that 
you were talking about a lot of the same things. So I'd like to go back over your article and your thoughts about that article. There were three, three big sections that I really focused on. The two of them are the insights from error analysis. And you sort of divided it up into individual cognitive factors and system-related factors. Could you expand on that for, uh, for the audience? Because I think that's, that's really a, a nice way to formulate the problems we're having with diagnostic errors. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, we like to sort of think about it in the cognitive and sort of systems-related buckets. And just to sort of um, recap, with cognitive, we mean things that are related to, you know, the data gathering process, uh, interpretation of data, everything that's related to some kind of an individual process, such as, um, you know, it could be overconfidence, judgment issues, knowledge deficits, all of that would go into sort of the cognitive bucket. In system-related issues, we would think about, uh, you know, things beyond just the individual, right? So you've got a communication going on, you're coordinating care with m multiple team members, there's policy and procedures that guide the way we deliver this complex health care. So a lot of these issues are sort of beyond just, you know, a single physician's thinking what they are thinking in their heads. Because oftentimes, diagnosis evolves over time, it evolves between people and places, you're also dependent on diagnostic information from other sources, such as a radiologist or the lab or the pathologist. And the issue here is it's nice for us to sort of think about these two buckets, but in reality, both of these buckets are very, very related. Think about this. Um, you know, if I'm making a diagnostic decision in a 10-minute or 15-minute, um, you know, cl clinical visit, uh, either in a primary care setting or emergency room or urgent care, I'm using the electronic health record, I'm sort of communicating with patients and family members, I'm doing my quality measures, I'm documenting a lot of information. So if I miss something in the midst of that, which was important critical finding, it depends, it's my cognition is affected by the system. Let's assume there's an abnormal test, which is lost to follow up because there's no clear cut uh, responsibility allocation. You know, there's ambiguous responsibility in the health system as to who's responsible for the test. Uh, that's sort of a system issue, but then, you know, it sort of inter intersects with the cognition. So I think we like those two buckets. Um, it helps us sort of think about strategies, but in essence, those two things are really related. So I, I really like that. I have another, I think this is a system thing that we can overcome, and that is anchoring bias. And I see this all the time where in 2019, and this was not true back in the 70s when I was a house officer, in 2019, you have to label the patient with a diagnosis to get them out of the emergency department into the hospital. If there's not a diagnosis, you're not allowed to admit them. You can't just say they're sick. And that labeling, which I think leads to anchoring bias and premature closure, is really a system problem that affects us on an individual cognitive um, realm. And, and do you see this also, or, or am I just getting overexcited no, about this? Uh, this is a, just a wonderful example because it also brings uh, the concept of uncertainty and how we handle uncertainty in medicine to light. Uh, you know, we're sort of always 
I I've seen sort of cases where you know patients have been labeled with um, you know cancer just because someone had to give a justification to get a CAT scan and that just label just stuck with them for you know months till somebody clarified that. I think we're still um, sort of figuring out how we handle uncertainty, how we recognize uncertainty, communicate uncertainty, document uncertainty, manage uncertainty, and communicate it to the patient. We're not. We're always you know trying to be very black and white in uh, diagnosis and in medicine in general, but it's all very gray, and the system doesn't allow us to think through those gray concepts because it always wants a discrete field where you could just put the diagnosis. Differential diagnosis is another thing that's related. It's sort of not very encouraged. One of our studies, we found 80% of the errors that we looked at had no differential diagnosis documented in the medical record. Now, that doesn't mean it wasn't done, but it just wasn't documented. So uh, imagine somebody showing up with a uh, left-sided, you know, um, you know, weakness and, and, and numbness in a 16-year-old, and uh, somebody writes carpal tunnel syndrome and doesn't do a differential diagnosis, including TIA uh, or CBA. So uh, I, I to- I'm totally with you that I think we are sort of shying away a bit from the grayness of medicine and wanting to put put the diagnosis in buckets and not document how uncertain we are. So this really leads into uh, your big point uh, to me in this article is the emerging strategies for error reduction. I love the fact that you, you mentioned differential diagnosis. When I was a, an intern and resident in the 70s before we had electronic medical records, if I didn't have a differential diagnosis in my impression section, I would get yelled at the next day. <laughs> you can, yeah. And now there's no place to put it in the damn record. Yeah, it's um, we've been sort of talking to um, uh, you know, sort of the general health IT community as to making the differential diagnosis a part of uh, the clinical record. Now, you know, we don't always have to do a differential. Sometimes a person will come in in primary care for you know a routine medical medical appointment, follow up on diabetes and other things. But most of the time, when patients present with undifferentiated symptoms specifically in urgent care, emergency room settings, and even in primary care or hospitalized settings, we really need to think about documenting our thinking to some extent. Yes, it's not possible to sort of write stories, and you're already putting a lot into the medical record, but that original thinking about how things could be considered one versus the other, we really need to think about documenting uh, at least some of that in the medical record. You know, there's some recent uh, evidence and and we have the pleasure of working with uh, students and uh, inter- interns and residents that having a team think through a problem is better than having an individual work through a problem. That's easy for us because of our jobs. If someone is a, is a hospitalist uh, by themselves uh, in a community hospital, what should they be doing in these situations? I've become a big believer of uh, seeking help when you need it. Um, in our overconfidence study, we... Um, we, when we gave uh, you know, these vignettes to internists, and some of them were really, really difficult vignettes, and we were trying to see if their confidence level drops when they are very uncertain or when they're in the middle of a difficult case. 
and it didn't drop very much. And we also sort of gave them options of asking for help, such as you know looking at a differential diagnosis generator, uh, looking at some uh, you know um, uh, online resource such as Up to Date, calling for help from a colleague or a consult, because really there are many uncertain situations or there's need for some information resource to help you do the diagnosis or get get to the diagnosis in a better fashion. And what we found was, you know, we're not very good with seeking help or asking for help when we need it. And you mentioned the concept of humility earlier. I think we're going to need to sort of think about things like curiosity and humility and asking for help much more than we are right now in, you know, 2019. That has to be a part and parcel because we cannot know about the 10,000 diseases that, you know, that we could potentially diagnose. Yes, some are more common than the others, but just the knowledge uh, is increasing so dramatically over time. Uh, the um, treatment strategies, the diagnostic strategies is always evolving. So looking up stuff is so important, and I do that at rounds. I interrupt rounds, and sometimes the resident, that's another reason sometimes the residents don't like it, because I would interrupt rounds and look up stuff in the middle of rounds, and they're like, what are you doing? we got to move on for the next to the next patient. Yeah, well, I, I do the same thing. And I actually have colleagues that whenever I'm puzzled about a case and, and we're having trouble with the team, I'll sit down and run it by one of my colleagues. I try not to have any ego at all about diagnosis. I probably do, but I try not to. And I think that uh, just want to reemphasize what you said about that. I think that's really, really important. Well, this has been just a wonderful conversation, and I think we've put the whole area of diagnostic errors into a wonderful context. In the last minute or two, what other thoughts do you have? What, what do you want the listeners to really remember about this conversation and about diagnostic errors? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I consider these as um, learning opportunities. So every time I have a miss, um, it's a learning opportunity. And we just sort of need to learn from our mistakes. And one of the things we've been thinking about is it's not just about the accuracy of diagnosis, whether you got it right or whether you got it wrong, but it's more about the process of how you got there. And so when I say diagnostic process, what that means is it's also in the uh, annals paper, but it's the you know patient-physician encounter, uh, the testing process, uh, the coordination with referrals and you know tests, and again patient-focused issues. We got to think about uh, diagnosis as a process and not necessarily an outcome. And we really need to hit home the um, uncertainty and the humility aspect that uh, you and I just talked about. Hardik, thank you so much. I, I think that this is just a wonderful conversation. And it was so much fun to go back and read this article from 1957 and find out that in many ways, we're just reinventing what history tells us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. As I'm sure you could tell, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Hardeep Singh. We're both passionate about uh, the field of diagnostic errors, and unfortunately, we see diagnostic errors far too frequently. It was fascinating that the categorization of the reasons for errors that were suggested in 1957 really map very well onto our understanding in 2019. 
Hardeep's uh, article focuses on cognitive errors, and there are many reasons for cognitive errors that we discussed. The problems of premature closure, the problems of framing bias, and the problems of not just taking the time to go through a differential diagnosis. His article also discusses system errors, and we discussed a variety of system errors. Lab tests being lost because it's not clear who's responsible, having labels on patients that may stunt our cognition, and just the everyday busyness of practice in 2019. He and I hope that you will think more about the diagnostic process and perhaps some of the, our discussion will help you slow down uh, and make less errors. I certainly hope that's true for me. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.